Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast about JavaScript and other things. I'm your host, Khalil, and this is episode two. I can parachute into anybody's project. Today's guest is Brennan Hayes. He is a Ruby and Ember developer, maker at his company Frontside, podcaster, and a speaker at various Ruby conferences. Um, welcome to the show, Brendan. Hi. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's, it's good talking with you. <laughs> um, so um, what is your, my first question would be, um, what is your history as a programmer? How did you get started and how did you then end up with Ruby and Ember? Um, okay, so I get yelled at uh, by a close friend of mine every time I, I say this. So I, I, in, in knowing that it's sort of self-deprecating, uh, I, do, I do tell people I'm kind of not a real programmer. I feel like I'm not a real programmer. Okay. Um, I snuck in the back door, although uh, I'm feeling less lonely now. I meet a lot more people that, that have, feel like they've done this where uh, I, I grew up not knowing anything about programming, that it was relatively new to me. Um, at, at 29, uh, I started programming for the first time. Uh, a friend at the company I worked at handed me a book called Learn to Program by Chris Pine. Uh, I picked that up and did it at nights and came in the next day and I was like, you guys get paid to do this? And he was like, <laughs> He was like, I know, right? So uh, from that that point forward, I was kind of enthralled with the idea of it. And it kind of spun out of control at that point. I uh, became pretty obsessed and, and started programming and started attending meetups and starting getting to know the various programming communities. And uh, it just kind of spiraled from there. Now that's, you know, now it's my hobby and my, my profession. And uh, I, I really enjoy it. Cool. And did you start with Ruby right away? Was that your entry? Uh, yeah, Ruby was my first language. Uh, I picked up the Learn to Program book, and it's all in Ruby. And so that's kind of the, the the people that I knew were in the Ruby programming community. And so that that's the the first language I ever got into. And I to this day I really like it. Uh, I work full time now in JavaScript, uh, but that's the uh, Ruby is is still obviously it's my first love, and it, it's a language that will always be. Uh, close to my heart. I really, I really like working in it, and I still, I still feel part of the Ruby community, even though my full time job is in JavaScript, and and I, I love the JavaScript community too. Cool. Um, so you're working at Frontside. Um, what is that? Is that a company that you founded as well, or are you? Um, no, employed? it's it's got uh, it's got a longer history than that. Um, it was founded about uh, eight years ago, mm-hmm. and I came in. Uh, as a partner about a year ago to kind of help uh, grow it, it, it was a small, a very small consultancy, basically a one, one person shop. And uh, I came in a year ago, uh, the, the founder and I had a, sh- a shared vision for the kind of place that we wanted to run. We wanted it to be uh, a little larger than that and a little more ambitious. And we wanted to turn the shop at that point. It was primarily Ruby. And we wanted to focus on uh, building ne- next generation kind of web interfaces, more desktop-like experiences on the web and we both had uh, become smitten with ember js and so that that's what we do these days is primarily ember js building uh, desktop like web applications okay so so that is what frontside does basically um yep okay so that is basically is that kind of your mission um that's what you want to do uh, and that's the that's the only jobs you take or um do you do other um, stuff yeah. as well no that's that's pretty we're, we're fortunate in that that's all we need to take so far. Um, okay. It's definitely our preference. Uh, we really like doing, uh, we want to work, we do a little user experience work, but we love working with user experience people that push and challenge us, uh, that that ask a little more out of their web application than people traditionally do with server-side applications. So we're, we bet really big on client-side, client-side web applications and uh, in particular uh, building them in Ember. And so we've kind of... Our reputation has been sort of uh, developed on being really good at Ember. We have uh, we work with people who work. Uh, some of our team members contribute directly to Ember or on the Ember release team, um, and so that that technology we're making a big bet on thinking because it's our, our favorite out of the out of the group. But uh, I, I look at the community in the Angular and React uh, and Ember communities uh, and a few others actually as kind of all collectively pushing the web forward. Um, and I really believe in this idea of the web as an application runtime. Uh, that that this is a place that applications will you build and run the same way that you would build an iOS app that just consumes an API, uh, and so we concern ourselves more with the front end than the API. Although when called upon, we can we can do some of the API stuff as well. 
So, but it's, 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 that's one of our missions. We have a, we have a few things that we care a lot about and that's, uh, that's, that's the one that our clients care the most about. Okay. So, so do you actually also work with other backends? Do you sometimes do only the front end or do you always do both? Um, so we typically, we typically deal primarily in the front end and, uh, But because uh, Charles, the other partner here uh, who founded the company, is so experienced on back-end stuff, I come from a back-end background, um, we'll dive in and help on the back-end when necessary. Um, Charles okay. are pretty varied experiences. So uh, a lot of times people that are building Ember applications are building on, on top of Rails. It seems to be the most common, but we've also worked with Django on the back-end and mm -hmm. uh, Java. And so it's really cool. I actually like JavaScript because it's kind of a melting pot where people work in the front end, but they'll often have to go back and, and uh, uh, work at an API layer and say, actually, I need, you know, I need the API to be served in this way uh, would make a lot more sense and fewer requests or whatever. So uh, helping, helping out on the, on the back end is something that we still do periodically. Um, and, and it's fun, uh, but, but the, it, it seems like Uh, it, it's not, you know, backend stuff doesn't feel like the next frontier to us anyway. Like the frontier that we want to push forward is and, and feel more closely connected to a person's actual experiences. It, it just feels it feels like we're more closely connected with the stuff we love working on when we're working on the front end. Okay. And uh, so so this sounds like you can do. So basically, uh, do you do your customers often come with Ember in mind or Do they just want um, like a thick front-end client-side app and you then say, okay, we can do that. We're going to do it with Ember. Or do they have sometimes even other um, frameworks in mind that they want you to use and then you, you have to talk them into Ember or something like <laughs> it's, that? It's kind of um, – that's a good question. It's kind of a healthy split. Uh, we, we get a lot of people coming to us because we've uh, – in the process of building these, we didn't set out to become Ember experts. Uh, but in the process of building a few applications in a row in Ember, just because it's our preferred technology, uh, you bump into enough stuff that people are, people uh, people start recognizing that you have this body of knowledge. And so people come to us. We actually offer Ember trainings and stuff now. We're doing our first one of those in about a month. Cool. And uh, that that stuff, it's just something, it's it's a side effect of our work, but it's not, you know, the primary driving purpose is for us to, you know, become the world's best Ember developers. Uh, okay. But it is, uh, but, but. You know, just kind of being good at something is just a, a matter of having done it a bunch. And so we've done this uh, for a longer period of time than a lot of other people. And so we, we get to kind of uh, hopefully we get we give away enough of this information via blogs and open source software and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, sometimes people will hire us just for Ember expertise. But those are usually the smaller of our projects. The larger ones are people that want a thick client and don't really care how it gets done. And to us, that's actually how Ember shines. Ember is like. Uh, Ember is a productivity tool. It is not, um, it's not a cult. It's not a religion. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a lever that you use to get a lot of productivity as a developer. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, people, uh, but it also does have a really great community around it. And that's actually when I'm looking for a tool to use, I actually look very closely and I, I tend to vote with a community. Um, and I, I looked around a, a lot of these tools have really great communities around them. And I, I really like the Ember community. I like how helpful they are. I like that when I, when I get stuck, Uh, not everybody just yells at me to go read the documentation or source code. I can actually find help. Um, and, and I like participating in that ecosystem. So, so when people ask us, you know, hey, we don't really care what you build it in, um, we're definitely going to by default do Ember. Um, right. I, also like to build, I also like to build a diversity of experience. So um, when a project will come along and somebody says, hey, we, we insist this be done in Angular, we're happy to oblige. Uh, even though primarily our work is done in Ember, it's You know, being knowing Angular makes a person a better Ember developer if they choose to be an Ember developer. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, you, under, you understand trade-offs better. Uh, we, we're building, uh, we just got done with a big project we built in uh, Backbone. And that's the only one I suggest people not do new projects in now. Okay. I think better, better options exist uh, mm -hmm. unless, if, if you're going to undertake a large single-page application, it, there are some Backbone marionette people that will be very angry. But my, our experience in doing this uh, has really suggested, unless a person is very entrenched in that stack, uh, better options now exist. Mm -hmm. um, that's it's kind of a product of its time from five five years ago. Right. So, one of my questions here is is basically um, I wanted to know why 
um, you, why do you choose Ember as your front-end stack or your, your favorite front-end um, uh, framework? But basically, you, you answered a lot of it already. But can you... Um, did, did, you did you evaluate other frameworks before you kind of... Uh, uh, did you look into, like... Yeah, did you did you really evaluate them before you you said okay this Ember this is really our thing, or um, did it kind of come out of the because it comes out of the Ruby world was there kind of a default for it already? So it's uh, it's different for different people. Uh, so Charles and I came from very different perspectives. Um, for me, I started developing Ember on accident. Uh, because somebody else set up a project of mine and dumped Ember into the project and left the project. Okay. And so I had to kind of come to grips with uh, this this technology. This is about two years ago, uh, almost exactly two years ago, actually, at a Rails Rumble. Um, and they so they dropped Ember into the project and left. And so it's kind of up to me to figure out, like, well, I want to finish this project. What do I do? And so try to put the pieces back together as best I could. And so I... Uh, Uh, and then didn't really, still didn't really know what I was doing. And I showed up to an Ember uh, conference uh, because some friends told me, hey, come to this Ember conference in San Francisco. And uh, I, w I went to it and I didn't know what anybody was talking about. I didn't know Ember yet. Uh, it was, it, it felt pretty embarrassing, but I, I decided I wanted to learn the framework. So I started a, a, an Ember meetup locally here in Austin, Texas, where I live. And just said, I want to, you know, I want smarter people than me to come meet me and teach me this thing. So for me, it was pretty much the first thing that I tried. I'd used Backbone and Spine before and had a really hard time with them. Mm -hmm. Really, really hard time. So uh, I, I wasn't having a lot of fun with the front-end frameworks. I mostly did just jQuery spaghetti soup stuff uh, in, in my JavaScript. And so uh, Ember was the first thing that really helped me feel like I could tie that together intelligently. But the learning curve was very steep at this point. Mm. Um, so it took me about... I don't know. It felt like four or five months to get to where I felt proficient enough in it that I could actually build and, and, and do applications. And it was during that time that I met my business partner who had a different, completely different track. He was very, very experienced in JavaScript. Um, he built uh, a project that he became well known for called the Ruby Racer, which is uh, a way for Ruby and JavaScript to share objects uh, with referential integrity and all this crazy stuff. He did it as a fun project. Uh, and it turned out uh, to get wrapped up in in Rails. So they wrapped it up into Rails for their asset pipeline. And suddenly, uh, you know, he's this open source maintainer of what was supposed to be a toy project that now he had to do deep dives on both Ruby and JavaScript and C extensions and all this crazy stuff to to keep that thing running for other people. So uh, and, and the heat evaluated uh, way more thoroughly than I did. I fell into Ember and evaluated other stuff after from the lens of an Ember developer. And uh, my partner uh, did a bunch of evaluation of other things first. And he was like, okay, I get Angular and I don't like how, you know, the, the data binding is surrounded by templates and he's evaluated. Uh, you, you know, you're constantly evaluating um, other things to see uh, if there's, you know, if, you, if there's a reason to pull another tool out of your tool bag uh, to do a certain job. And Ember covers enough bases for us that uh, there's not a huge benefit to be gained in doing a, a competing framework in many cases like Angular. Um, because if you know Ember really well, uh, there's a lot fewer cases that, that are a good time to use to learn and use Angular uh, than. But other stuff that's, that's significantly different from Ember, like React, is, is suddenly more interesting. Uh, React or the famous framework or th things that have a very different approach than Ember uh, are more interesting to me than something that's kind of straight across really similar. And I would say the same thing for Angular developers. If you're really deep into Angular and you can build single page apps all day long, um, other than uh, other than picking up, uh, other than picking up, you know, whatever you're going to learn from the Ember router and things like that, I, it's a pretty hard sell to take somebody who's really experienced in one framework. It's like telling a Python developer to switch to Ruby or a Ruby developer right. to switch to Python. The, yeah. the gains just it's a unless you're just specifically looking for a specific job it's a pretty tough sell mm -hmm, uh, you're mm -hmm. not going to learn as much as if you were doing something completely orthogonal yeah that makes a lot of sense um and just um as a question to your company um are you also working on your own products or are you only doing client work uh right now we only do client work Uh, we have a few product ideas, uh, one of which I brought in and was, you know, 90% complete when I started here a year ago and is 90% complete today. Uh, I did not anticipate 
how taxing running a company was going to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, all the side projects that I've had since then have kind of languished. And that, that that's a shame because I, I love to see products get built and released. Uh, most people that I know that I have a lot of friends that run consultancies and uh, have one or two like, you know, dream product ideas. But I can also tell you if you if you've ever run a consultancy or, you know, anybody who does uh, and they've tried to, to build and launch a product, um, it's a it's a monstrous effort. Uh, to try to pull together and ship and release and market a product while you're also doing client work. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I've been enjoying being able to have nights and weekends for <laughs> the recent past. And uh, someday, someday it's on my list of stuff that I want to do. But uh, right now I'm enjoying being able to see my children at night. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And uh, what, what is what does the title the title maker mean? What is what is the what is the work you specifically do? Um, so uh, maker was a total cop out. Um, I I didn't know what to say for my job title because uh, Charles and I are kind of hippies. We're basically building a little collective here. We have kind of we have a mission uh, for the front side. We both had this shared vision that um, we could kind of it was just the two of us and uh, one intern at the time uh, when we looked around and. Uh, we had we have a sizable office that was like almost completely empty, and we looked around and said, "Okay, I see somebody over there, and they're writing a blog post about how to do something, and they're over here is somebody writing an open source component. Uh, there's somebody over here uh, working on client work. There's somebody over here building out a product idea. Like we had this vision of a diverse team uh, doing a bunch of different things, uh, working toward a, a set shared set of common goals, and we just wanted to create a space for that to happen, and uh, that." that's really driven us from from day one is like building the kind of programming collective where everybody levels each other up everybody teaches each other everybody makes each other a better programmer uh and hopefully uh, like in generally a better person and providing the kind of work environment uh to do that and it sounds i don't know it might sound kind of hippy dippy or or uh overly idealistic but basically it was an experiment like it can we build the kind of company that we would be proud to work for And if we can't, let's quit and get better paying jobs. Like, <laughs> let's shut the whole thing down and forget it. Because it, like, you make a lot of sacrifices to run a company. So if you can't, mm-hmm. if you can't run the kind of company that you want to run, uh, we were fully willing to shut it down and just go get day jobs. And so far, that is, the bet has paid off. Um, we're really happy with the 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 place and direction that the front side's at right now. Cool. Um, so it's been it's been fun. Yeah, we get to work with people that we that we love. We get to provide a kind of workplace that, uh, you know, we make a lot of mistakes, but we have to provide the kind of workplace that we would hopefully want to work for. Um, we provide 100 percent healthcare coverage uh, where some nobody should ever come out of pocket uh, for a dollar for any healthcare expenses here. Um, there's just a couple of things that we do that we're like we're willing to take a principled stand on because, again, it's like. If we have to compromise on some of these things, some of these things are just not worth compromising on. And let's just all go get better jobs. Yeah. Sounds cool. <laughs> Sounds like a nice place to work. Uh, it, it, it has its moments. <laughs> other times. <laughs> And uh, are you uh, completely, are you all, you're in Austin, right? Yeah. So are you all yeah. there or are you decentralized? We, we, no, we are 100% centralized in Austin. And it's actually, uh, this is an in- interesting set of trade-offs. When you're building a programming shop, you have to make a few really tough decisions. Uh, one, and, and, and I think you'll, if, as you talk to other people who also, uh, run or, or work in consultancies, you'll see, um, so far I haven't found a way to straddle this fence. And if we do, um, we'll, f- we are going to tell everybody how to do this. Um, we've, one of the founding principles of this company was about apprenticeship. Uh, we had a, we started when I started here. We had an apprentice, um, and he's since kind of graduated from our apprenticeship program and become a full fledged developer here. Uh, we've just recently taken on another apprentice, and we would like to do about two of these a year. And apprenticeship is really tough. It's extremely high bandwidth. An apprentice needs a lot of guidance and needs uh, they need a lot of oversight. They need a lot of input and a really tight feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And uh, taking on junior and apprentice level developers is is a anybody will tell you is is a, a big challenge, and the whole team has to be bought in and ready for it. We actually had to wait because our team hadn't gelled enough yet to take on an apprentice. And finally, uh, we felt like we were ready, and we took on an apprentice, and we're really happy with her work so far. And 
trying to gel that together with a remote team. Before I started here, I was working remote. I was working from home. I didn't deal with the horrible Austin traffic, which I think just got ranked as like third or fourth worst in the United States. Um, so I sit in, I sit in traffic 45 minutes each way every morning and afternoon um, to come work in a centralized location with these people. Uh, and uh, the work experience is great, but, but traffic is a quality of life question. Um, being able to hire outside of your city is a quality of talent question. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the balance with, with this, any of these is right now, as far as I can tell, you have to choose whether you value remote culture or apprenticeship culture, because I do not know anybody that does them both. And if, if I, if I come into contact with anybody, if anybody that's listening to this has any knowledge about this, uh, we, we are about ready to step off the ledge and, and make an attempt at starting to branch out and do some remote work uh, and try to keep our apprenticeship culture. And that's really, really hard. Hmm. Um, so I'm, we're still trying to figure that out. Cool. It's a sore subject because I love, I love remote work. And it's uh, mm -hmm. something that I, for my own self, I want, I want so badly. Uh, I don't know if you, do you work remote? Uh, <clears throat> once a week I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe that's, you know, there may be some balance there. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I would like to uh think I would like to work uh remote a little more often because my commute is a little bit harsh. It's uh 2 hours uh, back and 2 hours uh, uh 2 hours uh, to go and and then another 2 hours back. So this uh Now yeah. I feel awful about complaining about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you do that 4 days a week. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's um so to to me, I mean, I meet people that do that, but that's, uh, to me, that's, that's, uh, wow, that's insane. That's crazy. That's, uh, that's very, <laughs> that's extremely difficult, I guess, is, is what I mean to say is it sounds, it sounds super challenging. Um, and like, and so, you know, you know, as well or better than most people on the, on the planet that that's a, that's a, uh, there's a huge quality of life upgrade when you start working from home more frequently Yeah, uh, and, and you're able to work from wherever you want. Definitely. Um, and as an employer, it's, it's, uh, it's something that you want to be able to just say yes to. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I wish it was, I, w for, I wish for us, it was as simple as just doing it, but, um, we could actually give people a really bad experience if we did that. So, mm -hmm. uh, we're working on it. We have, we have plans for the next, uh, three to six months of starting to, uh, hire our first remote employee, um, and start letting people work from home more frequently and seeing if we can keep that, keep the keep the thing that we have rolling and don't lose that, but allow people to work from where they like. Uh, and, you know, again, this is an experiment that if it, if it doesn't work out, we're fortunate enough that the consequences are, we all just have to go get a different job. You know, the consequences <laughs> aren't that, you know, nobody, nobody ever gets to work again. So right. uh, it's worth, it's worth taking a few risks like that. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So, <clears throat> I was um, I, I I heard you talk on JavaScript Jabber, Jabber at some point because I I love mm -hmm. that podcast I listen to uh, to it all the time, and you were on there you were talking about um, basically how I understood it and how I would summarize it you were talking about basically reworking legacy jQuery code into Ember components mm -hmm. is that is that correct Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so this seems to be something that you've been thinking about a lot and that you've been doing a lot because I guess yeah. you have been taking over uh, legacy code and you've been reworking it. Can you uh, can you just describe a little bit how this process works? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's pretty pretty straightforward and and it's it's not necessarily a formula so much as it's a set of observations um, about. Uh, about a, a, a how I've se a pattern I've seen emerge when I'm taking an existing spaghetti uh, jQuery based code base and refactoring it towards a framework, and it, this can be any framework. I think the the the, the steps that I outlined uh, especially uh, worked for Ember for us um, because that's a framework we we lean on and work with. But uh, I read a really great post from a guy named Ryan Florence. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, he's a Utah-based developer. Uh, one of one of our empl employees used to work for him, and and I like the guy a lot. And I think he's very sharp. Uh, he's primarily uh, uh, working in React these days. Uh, and uh, he, there's this common sentiment in the JavaScript community um, 
that is sort of anti-framework. Like, hey, we don't want a framework. We don't want heavyweight stuff. We want to do, we want to build apps however we want. We want to compose things out of small modules. And all that is, I, I think there there is definitely merit to that argument. But uh, Ryan wrote a great post called You Can't Not Have a Framework. And uh, the <laughs> the gist of it is no matter what you do, you're building a framework of some kind. So you're either working within a framework that someone else has built, an open source framework, or you are building kind of either intentionally or haphazardly a framework for your own team to work in. And the question is, who's going to own and maintain that framework? And I, I don't know what your experience is with this, but that has been my experience, both working in the front end and in the back end. Uh, and my worst work experiences have been working in these haphazardly built uh, accidental frameworks. I don't know. Do, do you have any experience running into stuff like that? <clears throat> Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, my, my experience is basically like if you have a, a set of tools like in form of a framework um, that is kind of battle proven and you know your way around it, that's always that's always good. That's always the quickest way in, at the end to, to build something. Yeah. And, and I've seen teams actually do a good job. I've actually worked in a uh, in a backbone framework that I that it was, you know, it was more work to do than uh, I'm used to. But it was actually pretty well constructed and pretty well architected. It you know it doesn't just rolling your own framework isn't necessarily a bad thing. No. Uh, and so I, I have to I want to be I, I always want to be able to uh, preface it with that. Now for my for my money and I'm I'm the kind of programmer I, I'm not a I don't like building frameworks. I actually like building products. And so the co the concept of building a framework is completely foreign to me. So I usually wind up working in someone else's. Mm -hmm. And my experience is. When I'm working in Ember, I can parachute in to anybody's project and become almost immediately helpful. Uh, it's sort of like when I was doing a lot of Ruby on Rails. I could parachute into any Rails project and be immediately helpful and say, okay, show me where, you know, your user model is. Show me where your, you know, uh, where the, you know, the controller for this domain model is. And I can parachute in, drop in and immediately start working, uh, or pretty shortly. And Ember is a similar experience to that. And every time, whether I'm working in a back-end or front-end framework, the period of acclimation to uh, the conventions that people have custom-rolled for their own domain, um, we're all trying to do the same thing. Like, show me how you take a request and return uh, return model data as JSON, you know? Like, everybody needs to do that same thing. And if you're doing it in Rails, you know exactly where to find stuff. And if you're doing it in, in, in a hand-rolled framework in Sinatra, uh, often there's a multiple day journey. I've actually lost a week or two in the past jumping into a code base, trying to figure out how to do something that I would know in 15 minutes if I were in a, in a more typical framework. Mm -hmm. So personally, my vote is, is typically to go with a community supported framework uh, that accomplishes the, you know 80% of the thing that I'm hoping to do. Um, the question for a lot of other people is, well, do you spend a bunch of time fighting the framework on the other 20% that it doesn't do as well? And the answer is totally yes. Yes, absolutely. You fight the framework uh, to get try to get to uh, to not do stuff that you know your specific domain needs. And so uh, there are definite trade-offs there. And so if if uh, if managing that other twenty percent that it doesn't focus on um, doesn't cost you more time than than building the other eighty percent, then that's a good sign to go with a framework. Anyway, so. Long story short, I, I like I like frameworks, and I like refactoring to frameworks. And so we we dropped into all these different kinds of code bases, and multiple times over the course of the last year, had lots of opportunities to to go in and find these haphazardly built, and some of them very rickety and scary uh, code bases, and refactor them to a framework and try to make them sturdy, uh, and uh, in our case, built you know take the logic and refactor it to Ember. And so that's what this talk was about, and that's what the uh, the, the JavaScript Jab Jabber podcast was about is is taking JavaScript, refactoring it into uh, specifically into the Ember JS framework. But I think uh, it's basically like a really simple five step thing. Uh, it's labor intensive, but it's not. It, it takes something that looks impossible uh, and makes it possible. So that, I guess that's why that's why I'm still really happy with uh, kind of the methodology that I laid out. Uh, do, I don't. Do you want me to dive into it a little bit? Yeah, please. Okay, so the way the way that I look at it, it's it's five steps. Uh, they're pretty straightforward. The first step is to wrap it. Uh, the second step is to test it. 
The third step is to identify your models. The fourth step is to identify your states. And the fifth one is to finally break it up. Um, and taken together, this is kind of, if you're intentionally de designing an application, this is kind of the same, same process that you would go through if you were designing an application on the whiteboard. You know, when you when you sit down and, uh, and, and design a, an application, I, I would hope most developers wind up starting on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard to talk about, you know, and you wind up usually having to talk about this aloud about what, what sort of models are involved here. Uh, what sort of state management are you doing? Uh, how do these things interact and bounce off of each other? And, uh, and, but you, you have to do this sort of retroactively by looking at code and it takes a little more effort. Um, so the first step of, of wrapping it, it's pretty simple. And this, this is true whether you're using React, uh, Angular, Ember, you, you take the code that's there. And the first thing you do is you take this big old blob of code that does a bunch of stuff you don't understand mm -hmm. and that, that, you know, all you know is that it, you know, like it takes this list of things and you click this button and, and it changes the list and you end up with a, a list that's organized differently or whatever, whatever this little piece of, you know, whatever this big blob of JavaScript is doing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I, <laughs> I will, uh, I will say, uh, in building the, the conference talk that this is based on, I did not cheat. I built a really gross, it was supposed to be this simple interaction to take a form, uh, and, uh, submit an email, validate it, submit it and handle success and failure states, uh, and then display the result on the, on the screen coming from the server. And it sounded so simple. And this actually came out of, uh, some client work I did. And they said, no, 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 just don't put a framework in there. Just, do this one thing. It's just it's just a form that takes an email and and you know does a thing to share and returns a result. And I was like, okay, that sounds really straightforward. And as I started diving into it and accepting more uh, requirements from the client, you realize it wasn't so simple. And so you wind up with this crazy compound logic with nested if statements, and um, it's just terrible to maintain. And it, you don't know what's going to happen in a given state. And suddenly the thing performs unreliably. It's impossible to edit, and it's kind of a nightmare to manage. And so. The, the whole point of, of wrapping it is to take the, all of that stuff and you don't change the code at all, mm -hmm. but you put it inside, uh, you put it inside an Ember component. In my case, uh, other people would put it inside a React component or an Angular directive uh, and then just stuff it into the DOM. But now the, 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 somebody else is responsible for putting this into the DOM. In my case, I, I put the, the markup inside a handlebars template. Uh, so now this is being put on the page by a framework. The only change is that it, that it's inside this, what I call a code jail. Okay. So, so the code goes into a code jail, uh, that, uh, we know if there's code inside this thing, there's still a mess, uh, a mess in there. The, the next step is, uh, now that you have this thing wrapped, uh, it, it should be a little easier to test it. So, you know, the Dom is in one state and you know that you click something and you know that something should happen. Uh, and possibly there's multiple steps to it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, my preference is for Mocha. <laughs> I, 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 I probably shouldn't get into test framework preferences, but I really like Mocha. The Ember community seems to settle, have settled on QUnit. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, QUnit has a syntax that feels like I'm sticking needles into my eyeballs every time I look at it. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no disrespect, uh, but oh, sure. it, it has an, it has an odd syntax and it has a, uh, has odd semantics that to me make it difficult to test certainly in this, um, uh, in a integration test style. So I actually like writing tests to say, go here, then click this thing, then click that thing. Um, and so testing JavaScript, I, I don't know if, uh, it, it seems to be becoming, uh, more accepted and standard, mm -hmm. uh, and, with that acceptance, it's actually becoming easier. Testing JavaScript can be kind of difficult uh, for people. And so a lot of people just give up on it. And, and my suggestion is testing is, I, I am the, like, I was late to the testing party. I was not an adherent to test-driven development, but testing has saved my sanity. And so if you're, if you're not testing your JavaScript, uh, I wholeheartedly recommend uh, putting in the time and yak shaving necessary on your next, you know, either hobby project or client project uh, to get a good test framework up and running and to do some basic integration testing. You know, the DOM is in one state. Uh, I see this thing in this order and I do some stuff. I click a couple of things. 
and now the DOM should be in this other state. Mm -hmm. It sounds really simple. Um, in this case, you know, it took me five or six hours maybe to get uh, the entire test coverage that I wanted to test this interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be it can be kind of painful and frustrating. And so uh, my suggestion for people is to not give up because it everything that comes after hinges on being able to test. So step two is test it. Uh, and once you have it all wrapped, it's, it's just really beautiful. <laughs> you, you know from here on out, every change that you make, you now know whether that change broke stuff or not. Um, and it allows you to start making changes extremely rapidly. Um, so the third step is to identify the models uh, in there. Uh, and I, I usually lean on the server, uh, the server-side MVC that you have if you're using Django or, or Rails or something. You'll usually have a models folder. And when you're passing data to and from the server, you're probably hitting an API endpoint uh, that's dealing with a resource that in most cases, certainly in Rails land, this is almost universally true, uh, it's probably tied to a resource that represents a model of some kind. But you're, you're getting JSON back from the server. And that JSON is probably under a namespace. And you look at that top level namespace, and maybe it's post, maybe it's comment, maybe it's person, uh, maybe it's animated GIF. Uh, whatever that is, that's probably your model. And so, and if you have multiple of those and they're related to each other, you probably have related models. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it's, the reason it's really important to identify those uh, is is because most of these MVC frameworks are uh, allow you to kind of isolate the concept of this model. Uh, certainly, Ember has a very strong sense of what models are. And uh, so you can now take this JSON response that you get back from the server, and instead of just stuffing it into the DOM somehow or manipulating that data, you can actually take that data and hold onto it on the client side. I guess uh, if you can envision having a pool underneath your application. Um, and the more models that you're able to grab from the server, so you pull JSON instead of taking JSON and anonymously like like just stuffing it into the DOM somehow, you take it and you turn it into a model. So you take this post and turn it into the idea of a post in your, in your client side application. Mm -hmm. uh, it now sits in a pool underneath your application and it just kind of hangs out there during the course of your client interaction. Well, it buys you a bunch of cool stuff. You now have this model. The model has an ID. So you have, a, like, say it's a post. You have a post ID, a post body. Um, you can take that and do all kinds of crazy stuff with it elsewhere on the page. And if you change it in one place on the page, that change, uh, certainly this is true in Ember. And if you set your bindings up correctly, uh, is going to be true in, uh, in Angular. Uh, if you make a change to the underlying data model, the change will be reflected on the page everywhere else automatically. And if you've ever had to troubleshoot something as nightmarish as like deleting a post and watching your post count tick down or adding a post and watching that post count tick up on a page, have you ever done that with jQuery where you're like, <laughs> you see a seven on there and you like grab the string, <laughs> use jQuery to read it and tick the string up mm -hmm. by one. Mm -hmm. Like I think everybody's had the experience, if you've ever done jQuery hacking, has had the experience of doing that yeah. and, and having it get out of sync. And it's the coolest thing when all of that stuff, you don't touch the DOM anymore. Basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to run away from the DOM as fast as possible uh, and, and manage the stuff at the layer underneath your application in that pool. So extracting models out allows you to work with data that's bound to the page directly. Ember's really good at this. Angular directives are good at this. React is pretty good at this. Um, so working with the data underneath the page instead of pushing state around in the DOM is is when you start doing that, uh, it, it's it's like a light bulb goes off. And that's when these frameworks start really uh, reaping dividends. So th basically, at that point, you're like uh, subtracting uh, subtracting more code from your code jail. Like you just see code just magically leave. And the cool thing is you run those tests again, and the tests pass. <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, that extraction worked. And my tests still pass. Uh, in fact, I, over the course of, of doing these refactors, usually uh, I'd have to do a little refactoring of the tests themselves uh, to, to test the DOM slightly differently than, than initially, but I don't have to change them fundamentally. Like the tests just stay there the, through the whole the course of this whole thing. The tests are testing the same thing. Uh, so, so anyway, the kind of the second to last thing is you identify what states the app is in. So like imagine a form, you have a form you're looking at uh, and it says, hey, click me to show uh, to show the input. So you click a thing to say, hey, share this with a friend. And you click the button and it, it slides down. It like animates down this thing uh, that says, you know, enter an email address. 
and you type in somebody's email address and it says, hey, that email address is not valid until it's, it's, until it's a valid email address. And it disables, let's say it disables the, the, the share button until, uh, until you have a valid email address in there. Well, you have this state now where it's an initial state. You have a state where you're editing it. You have a state where it's invalid. You have a state, let's say you click submit and it posts to the server. And now you have this like in-flight or loading state. Uh, and then it comes back and you either get an error state or a success state. Like just in this tiny, tiny one field interaction, you're dealing with like five or six states. And 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 managing that stuff, if you've ever had to do this in jQuery, you realize like you have these crazy nested if loops. And if and it seems like the easy thing to do to just drop a jQuery little widget in and manage it that way. But it turns out to be the hard thing to do because managing those states is like a nightmare. Well, what if you just give your Ember thing a property to say, hey, current state is this. And and um and you tell the you tell you're pushing the state around in your underlying framework. And the form is just in these uh suddenly you're you can represent your form differently just by telling uh the property uh, hey, if I get a thing back from the server, don't touch the DOM. Don't like put a red thing on the screen and don't do this and don't do that. You just say, put this into an error state, change the current state to error. Uh, and, and then let the computed properties take over the rest from there. And some really cool things happen in almost every framework you'll use. Where's this, the state managed again? Is it in the controller for the component? Yeah. In, 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 well, so in Ember, components are controllers. Right. So components are all-inclusive. Components glue together a, a, a controller and a view. So a controller is completely encapsulated. So I'm speaking in terms of, uh, this is something that not a lot of other shops do, but we really like this as a refactoring pattern, uh, where we just take a component and we use Ember components to kind of drop pieces of Ember onto the page the way that you would with Angular directives. And so you just replace specific parts of the page with uh, Ember components. Basically, uh, it's like uh, you're just replacing jQuery plugins or you have like, widgets for your page. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. They're just custom hand-rolled widgets managing uh, the stuff that you are currently manually doing in jQuery. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that allows you to do is then at the end, once you've done all of these refactoring on all these different components on your page, you should be able to look at your page and realize, wow, I have five Ember components on this page and no other HTML. It might be time to wrap this up and this could be actually a single page app. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's actually a, a strategy that I didn't come up with, my partner did, uh, for taking a very large uh, server-side Rails app that was generating all of its stuff server-side uh, and taking each of these individual pages, and we had like five or six or seven different pages, probably, actually probably more, seven or eight different pages, each of which was composed of uh, three or four components that we slowly, as we started replacing each of these components, at the end, we said, there's nothing left that your server is doing except for rendering a page that is now taken over by Ember components. This is now, this is now like a day's work. And it was like a day's work to refactor that whole thing to a single page application, which was their goal. Hmm. So, so the idea of refactoring a server side application to single page sounds, uh, it can be, it can be sort of intimidating, but this wound up being a really good strategy for that. Interesting. So, so basically from that point forward, it really is just a matter of, uh, of breaking, breaking things up along lines that start becoming obvious. So you go, Hey, this is, you know, this is one big giant component. And I have some code left in code jail. One of them, one of these things is for, let's say one of these things is for creating things. And I have another thing for displaying a list of them, but I want them to be on the same page at the same time. Well, in jQuery, that's a huge pain. And in something like Ember components, because again, you're dealing with a pool of data that's underneath your page. You're just grabbing the same pool of data and syncing it across these two different components. So uh, having two, three, four, five components on the page is great because they're all synced to the same data set. And so making a change in one place will automatically populate somewhere else rather than trying to manage all these state changes all over the place. So this is where frameworks really start making their money back for you. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's pretty much it. The, uh, the, the last bit is, is uh, kind of sweetening it with animation uh, and stuff like that. And that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty much it. Like, uh, like I converted this from these hand-rolled models to Ember data at this point, uh, but it kind of doesn't matter. Um, Ang Angular does a good job of using plain vanilla JavaScript objects as these models. Uh, Ember likes to use Ember objects for these models or Ember data. Mm -hmm. um, Ember data is nice if you just want the shortcut of having somebody else write the code to talk to the server for you, mm -hmm. uh, and your, your API is 
<laughs> your API is not too crazy. Uh, for people with crazier APIs, that's a that's a taller order, and and Ember Data is not a great solution for everybody in those cases. Um, but that that's pretty much it. Like at that point, you have an application that is uh, fully moved into Angular directives or Ember components or React components, uh, working off of a shared data set. And from that point forward, you could move to a single page application if you want. Like all kinds of cool things open up to you. Uh, and more importantly, you have a tested, uh, stable thing, and you get to sleep at night. That's like that's what it buys you back is just that you don't have that gnawing sense anymore of, uh, hey, this thing could break at any moment. Because I know personally, I've shipped code that keeps me up at night with like a rock in my in my stomach, just feeling like it, my client's going to call me at any moment, and and this thing's just going to fall apart. Right. And it's a it's a really cool feeling to. To, to just know that this thing is tested, it's stable, it's built on a framework that if something goes wrong and it's the framework's fault, um, <laughs> you have other people whose you know, who's, who's, uh, responsibility it is to help resolve that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's pretty cool. Cool. Sounds interesting. <clears throat> it really, uh, it, yeah, it sounds like if you really understand the framework you're working with and you go with that approach, then... Uh, I could imagine that it could be um, quite time-consuming uh, in the beginning, but uh, once you you kind of got into the groove and like in a method um, that works for you that you just apply all the time, it could actually work out time-wise as well with not as much as a, uh, as um, as much of an investment um, that you would think maybe and. And I think it's faster than people think too. Okay. Um, certainly, as as these frameworks start maturing, um, you know, you're seeing people come out of uh, uh, code academy type schools and and are able to put together, you know, functioning database backed websites after ten to twelve weeks of training. Mm -hmm. um, and I and and frameworks for better and for worse allow that kind of, uh, you know, people that have never programmed before are able to build websites all of a sudden. And and. I, Hopefully, I'm not so much an elitist that I think that's a bad thing. I think that's I think it's a good thing, but it's also a dangerous thing if left unsupervised. Um, I think uh, front end frameworks aren't quite there. They require a little more. They haven't matured as much as some of the back end frameworks, and so it requires a little more finesse and a little more training. Uh, but but there's a time sink that we don't often account for for some reason in our own code that we spend tweaking and worrying about and fixing things that are only slightly wrong. We spend so much time like with something almost done, but then we push something in and it breaks something else. Like if you've ever done that whack-a-mole deal where you like knock a bug out and it causes another bug somewhere else and it causes another bug somewhere else to fix that one and you follow that down, I've lost, you know, I've lost weeks of work to that. And so at this point, um, I've, I've just gotten to where I prefer using a framework. It doesn't eliminate that, but it certainly cuts down on its frequency. Uh, and, and so I, I think the investment pay, starts paying off uh, in, in lowered frustration and um, it's certainly higher at first. Learning a framework is an incredibly frustrating experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want, you know, I just want a thing to do a thing over here. And with jQuery, I could do that in like five seconds. Right. Um, but by step three or four, you're now out of the territory of things that you can grasp with your own brain because you now no longer know what pushing the fifth button is going to do to buttons one through four. Mm -hmm. Um if you've ever tried to build, if you've ever tried to build a replacement for like a native widget, like if you ever, if you know, like how 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 difficult it is to to do things that look like boneheaded simple. Uh, if you ever tried to build a select dropdown yourself, you're like, oh, I'll just build a select dropdown. Okay, well, what are you going to do about keyboard input? Okay, I'll add keyboard input. Okay, well, does it automatically scroll to the right? to the right entry when you hit up and down? No. Okay. Does it, uh, does it respond to focus properly? Does it get and lose focus properly? Like, is it, uh, accessibility compatible? Can screen readers read it? Um, you wind up dealing with like 40 or 50 things that browser vendors have had to do that you haven't really thought about. And, mm -hmm. and mo programmers are bad at estimating because we don't see the complexity that's packed into every simple idea that we have. Yeah, it's true. And so, and so it's that's where to me like this is where my selling point for frameworks comes in is like frameworks are are about uh you invest some time and energy to learn a thing whose whole job is to manage complexity and software developers often are like well i don't need a framework because my stuff is simple 
And um, my experience is so few things are simple. <laughs> they all look simple and they all seem simple. Mm -hmm. And and so I like having a partner, uh, you know, I don't really, I love Ember and I love the Ember community, but I don't really care what you choose. Because to me, moving the web forward is about uh, being able to do stuff that's more ambitious without fear because you have a partner in managing the complexity of ta tackling more ambitious things. Mm -hmm. So Ember is my partner, and we go take on more advanced user interfaces than I would have attempted two years ago. Um, for other people, that's going to be React, uh, and, and React is their partner, and that's awesome. And to me, that's what moves the web platform forward. Yeah. The other day, I was, I was using uh, two, two different applications. I was using the Heroku dashboard, which is built in Ember, and I was using CircleCI, which is a continuous integration tool, which is built in React. And they worked beautifully together. They each of them offered a beautiful and crazy interactive user experience that just nobody would have dreamed of two years ago. Right. And it kind of made me realize, like, uh, there are some fighting sometimes between people of different uh, different tool persuasions, but we're all fighting the same battle of making better user experiences for people. Uh, and and uh, it's pretty inspiring to just you know in our in my own small way to contribute by trying to build things and trying to teach people a little bit about. Uh, and, and evangelize this style of programming. I, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, I think that's it for my questions. I'm definitely going to link your talk and the JS Java podcast episode up in the show notes so people can uh, dive into it a little bit more. Um, awesome. Yeah. I, I really, I really love this uh, approach. I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, of the same, um, how do you say, uh, frame of mind or something like that like I, I really i'm also much more into building products and i'm i never build a framework and i never will i i know that for sure <laughs> and uh <laughs> and uh yeah so so this this really kind of resonates with me really really well and i'm very very interested into um getting into <clears throat> one of the frameworks i'm still kind of looking which one you know like works best for me i'm also very, uh, very interested in in ember and i did like a code school uh tutorial thing and stuff like that so mm -hmm. yeah so i'm uh, i find this uh this approach really intriguing it's really cool yeah um so uh, i would like to get into the picks now you said you have some picks so let's hear them all right. Yeah, I do. I have a, I have a few. I have three and a music one. Cool. That, uh, and so uh, without without belaboring, uh, so my first my first pick is uh, there is a course that somebody's giving. It sounded a little unusual, but this person I know and trust a lot in the subject, and it's called Practical Cartooning for Technical Folk. Um, so the idea is to teach people to communicate visually by uh, learning to cartoon, uh, learning to 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 draw cartoons. I. I loved cartooning and I loved art in junior high and high school and uh, a little bit after. And I kind of lapsed since then. I haven't really drawn anything in a long time. And I really love communicating visually. I think it's a really powerful medium. Um, and so the, the course is a few hundred dollars. Um, and she is a professional cartoonist. She's won a ton of awards. And uh, she is also a uh, one of the forward most thinkers in uh, HTML5 animation. Um, she's built a few really amazing animated experiences, including one called Alice in Video Land. So I, I think she's a super sharp communicator, uh, one of the leading thinkers in web animation and, uh, and a, a fantastic artist. So um, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to convince my wife that I need to spend a few hundred dollars on a cartooning course. And if you have a uh, if you are also able to persuade uh, your, your significant other, uh, I think this is going to be worthwhile. <laughs> cool. Uh, the, the second thing is, uh, just really quick, I've been doing a lot of robotics lately, um, which I never thought in a million years I would do. I also thought I would never work in C in my entire life, uh, being kind of late to programming. But I've actually been doing both. Uh, I, I helped, uh, my partner and I created a, um, a library to wrap uh, a C library for this thing called the Brick Pi, which is a Raspberry Pi, uh, a, a Raspberry Pi connector to allow you to talk to Lego Mindstorms robotics. So uh, Lego Mindstorms is a, a robotics kit that uses Legos and a few of these motors and sensors. And it has this brain that lets you work in very limited ways um, to build robots. And it's for kind of getting kids excited about programming. Uh, but the language is kind of cruddy. 
uh, the the tools are limited. Suddenly, Raspberry Pi, what do you got? You got Bluetooth on it. You can use whatever programming language you want. Uh, you've got uh, Wi-Fi. Like suddenly you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. So we built a robot and a robotics library and we have it drawing pictures uh, right now. Uh, we built a, a little Ruby uh, language for kids to be able to program it so that it can uh, draw geometric pictures. So it can draw a square, it can draw, you know, star shapes, and it looks like a spirograph. Cool. Um, and yeah, it's really fun. My kid is super impressed with it. Uh, we also, <laughs> nice. you know, so with the, with the library we created for it in like 45 minutes, I hacked together a script to let you drive it with remote control. Um, anyway, it's really fun. Uh, I recommend checking it out. Uh, it's called the brick pie. Uh, they have a less expensive one now that's almost ready to come out. That's more limited in its capabilities. It doesn't do Legos at all. Um, it's called go pie go, but it's about half the cost. Okay. Uh, my last sort of technical pick is uh, it's called Pickaday. Uh, I don't know if you've used this before. Um, I know of it's it. a yeah. Okay, it's a date picker. I've used every date picker under the sun. And when you are working with uh, one thing about wrapping jQuery components with Ember or any other uh, Ember or Angular or whatever, the API that they use, the event system that they use, the API they use matters a lot. And all of the ones I've used before have been terrible. And Pickaday actually has a decent API. Uh, it's a joy to work with. There's actually a ready-made component that works for probably 90% of use cases called Ember Pickaday, where you can just drop it in, and it's a component you just include with one line in your Ember app, and it and it makes Pickaday play perfectly nicely with your app. Nice. Uh, it's a it's a great little component, and it's a great widget. Um, and I think I think we're looking at sort of a new dawn of jQuery widgets uh, that give a crap about their internal APIs because now they're not just for sitting on pages with forms mm -hmm. they, to be submitted to a server. They're part of a, an alive, living application. And so jQuery widgets historically are pretty bad at that. And Pickaday is actually really good at it. Um, and my music pick. Uh, Weezer just came out with a new album. Um, I was a Weezer fan in the 90s. And I haven't really liked anything they've done since 1996. So I'm a Weezer hipster, I guess. <laughs> and... Uh, they just released a new album called Everything Will Be All Right in the End. And it actually, to me, goes up in their canon of their like of their top three albums now. Like it goes to me, it goes up with uh, the original uh, Blue Album and Pinkerton. Uh, I think it's uh, terrific music. I think they did a good job and I, I haven't really liked anything they've done since then. So uh, it pleases my inner hipster. So uh, that the, that's my music. pick. OK, so do we have a specific track? Uh, yeah, I would say, uh, it's, it's okay. This is a cheat, uh, because the, the track, uh, is actually in three parts. It's the last three tracks of the album and I forget taken together, uh, what they're called. Um, <laughs> it's like a, it's like something about space. Okay, cool. So well, I'll find, I'll find <laughs> it. And, uh, what was the, the, the name of the album again? The, the name of the album is everything will be all right in the end. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, I can tell you in just a second. Um, it is so. I forget what they're taking together, but the track is uh, called uh, "The Wasteland," "Anonymous," and "Return to Ithaca." Okay, cool. And it's like a little foray into prog, prog rock, into progressive music for <laughs> Weezer, which is not really their style, but it was pretty cool. I thought it was neat. Nice. I'm definitely gonna play a little bit after. At the end of the show, just put the music picks together right. and put it at the, at the end. Um, cool. so, so people can can uh, get a little taste and then support the artist if they, yeah. if they think it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a good use of $10. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So I'm just going to do my picks. I have, uh, I'm, I'm picking two podcasts today. So one, one is the Frontside podcast that you guys do, which I uh, sus <laughs> subscribe to and uh, quite enjoy. It's not as regular as I would like it, I think. Sometimes you have like bigger pauses. Is that uh, is that true? We we that's 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 not gonna. You have my commitment. That's not gonna happen anymore. <laughs> We're gonna do it every two weeks. Okay. We have one for tomorrow and then two weeks from then. Okay, cool. And um, yeah, so that's where where you talk also talk about your work, basically Amber stuff and the things you 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 mm -hmm. learn, right? So that's pretty cool. Yep. And uh, the second podcast is uh, called Random Trek, which is if you are 
if you like Star Trek, which I very much do, um, then you would like that uh, that podcast. It's basically uh, the host Scott McNulty. He basically chooses a random episode of Star Trek from all the different series series of Star Trek, and then uh, basically goes through. Uh, that they, he and a non-random host, uh, co-host um, that he chooses for each episode, they go through the whole episode and talk about everything in detail, and also make a lot, uh, you know, take take um, make fun of it a little bit sometimes because Star Trek can be a little bit weird and um, uh, illogical, but it's <laughs> it's it's very very entertaining, and I would definitely recommend it to anybody who. Um, somehow is a fan of Star Trek. And um, then that's, that's it for my, for my non-music picks. My music pick is, again, I also did that the last episode. Um, I'm picking a track uh, by my wife, of course, because we just had an EP release, so I have to do that. I'm, I'm biased there. Um, <laughs> once this is over, I'm going to have other picks. And that track is called Gorilla. And uh, I really... Love it. It's uh, has kind of a hip hop feel to it, um, but is very it's very bass heavy. It has some some good um, lyrics and um, yeah, um, definitely enjoyed. I'm gonna put it. Also gonna play it at the end of the show after the outro. And uh, yeah, that's it for the picks. So um, basically, I just um, you just need to tell the people where they can find you. What's uh, your various URLs? Uh, so you can uh, – my work stuff is all at frontside.io. Uh, my personal blog is at brandonhayes.com, and I am most vocal on and, – and to many people's chagrin – on Twitter at teviking, T-E-H Viking. <laughs> cool. Okay. So um, I am Distilled Hype on Twitter, and um, this episode will be up on um, uh, descriptive.audio slash episodes slash uh, two with all the show notes and um, the Twitter for this podcast is at descriptive pod and that's it for the show thanks so much for being on descriptive Brandon hey thank you so much for having me it was awesome it is already tradition in this very young podcast i'm going to play the music picks right now here at the end after the outro brendan picked weezer with the wasteland and i picked gorilla by agent lexi time simbies enjoy
Did you know that Agent Lexi times Simbis spells soul force backwards? Gorilla. Gorilla. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Got more punch than the filler in Manila. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Got more punch than the filler in Manila. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Got more punch than the filler in Manila. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Got more punch than the filler in Manila. I'ma show you how to talk like a J.A. talk. Yo, what the fuck with the bomber plot? You a creep, me not trust shadow after dark. Hey, pussy man, you step in and watch you walk. Me not hood rich, I'm good rich. Me not afraid to go box up a dumb bitch. I'm heartless, like Kanye. When you bump this, put it on replay. replay. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Got more punch than the villa in Manila. I'm swinging like an Amazon gorilla. Agent Lexi times Simbas has eaten a snake and the other one's eaten a dog. (laughs) 